You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Father, we pray that you would give us insight into your word this morning. Use the Holy Spirit to teach us. Father, we want to walk away today knowing better how to contend for the faith. So, Father, I pray that as we get into this practical application of what Jude had to say so many years ago, Father, I pray that we would take to heart this teaching, God, that we would seek to apply it as we continue to strive to be a church that is not only hearing the word, but doing the word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We started off our study in the book of Jude saying that the major theme of this book is contending for the faith in the face of opposition. Uh, Contending for the faith. Jude had other reasons for wanting to write. He wanted to draw their attention to the commonness of their salvation, but due to the urgency of what was taking place in this church or in this body of believers, he shifts his focus now to instead fighting for the faith that has been passed down uh, from the apostles. Uh, We said in verses 1 through 3, we see that call to contend. And then last week we looked at verses 4 through 16, the why we need to contend. And we looked at the urgency of the fact that false teachers are among us. People who are wanting to uh, confuse others about the faith. People that are wanting to change the faith. Uh, people that are wanting to distort the grace of God in, in light of the fact that they want to live according to their passions. They want to live absent from the authority of Jesus Christ. And so we looked at some major events last week in the history of Israel. Uh, we looked at the Israelites who uh, did not believe what God was doing in their midst. They were uh, defecting from the covenant that God had established at Sinai. We said that they abandoned the covenant when they were supposed to go into the promised land and God brings judgment upon them because of their lack of belief. We said that the angels are also guilty, that they are apostate. They are uh, individuals who have fallen away uh, from the glory of God. We said that um, in the context here, it, it's hard to determine exactly the time frame of when these angels fell away. Is it talking about uh, the demons that were cast out of heaven and they left that glory? They left uh, that submission to Jesus as their authority? Is it going one step further and talking about what what's alluded to in Genesis there about the possibility of them taking on uh, human form or uh, possessing humans for the sake of um, ungodly sex, it's not really clear. What we do know is that angels did something that walked away from their rightful position and their submission to God's authority. Gentiles the same way when we look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were defectors from the truth. I told you that it's highly likely that Noah and his, that Noah's sons, specifically Shem, was still alive at this time. An individual who was coming off the ark there's just our family where we're god fears there, there's no um there's nobody on this earth that's not a god fear so you would expect that for the next few generations people would have been faithful to be what we call today christian and yet with shem still alive we see sodom and gomorrah falling into complete debauchery complete ungodliness and so they had defected from the truth and had abandoned what god had communicated to them We said that ultimately we draw from that that unbelief, rebellion, and sexual sin will be punished. We looked at some specific individuals from Israel's past, Cain, Balaam, Korah, all three teachers of sin. They were were sinful and they taught others to sin as well, which is the major issue with these people, these false teachers. 
We looked at Michael, the archangel. We looked at Enoch, both who contended with humility and with the future in mind. We saw Michael um, in his contending for the body of Moses. He stays submitted to the Lord's authority. He doesn't speak on his own authority. He speaks on the authority of Jesus. We see Enoch with his mindset to the future of God's judgment, uh, contending for the faith with the future in mind. Um, And then we wrapped up last week talking about uh, just the negative aspect of who these false teachers are and their doctrine. It says in verse 12, they are hidden reefs at your love feast, meaning they are submerged rocks or submerged coral reefs that seek to damage ships. They are shepherds feeding themselves. They are selfish individuals. They are waterless clouds uh, swept along by winds. They are fruitless trees twice dead, uprooted. Verse 13, they are wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. We talked about the sea bringing in the the nasty stuff from the bottom of the ocean. They are wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. So it's in light of these individuals that existed in that time, that exist today, that we are called to contend for the faith in the midst of. And I told you, we're not necessarily in danger of false teachers walking in here to sovereign hope and communicating uh, false truth to us. We're, we're not set up in that way. We're not set up where itinerant preachers come through this area and have a platform to speak, which was real common in that day. We don't have false teachers that walk into our community very often. But what we did say is that it shifted more now to a global influence where uh, we have false teachers who are producing books and podcasts and, and they have a voice. They have a voice to us if we allow them to have it. And so we have to be on guard against the dangerous doctrine, the dangerous teachings that are out there. And so we come to verse 17 today. And this is the the climax of the passage. This is not Jude wrapping things up. This is where Jude wanted to get to all along. This is his practical application. So he's going back to verses 1 through 3. Contend for the faith. Then he did this, this big dialogue about why we should contend for the faith. But now he comes back to the aspect of contending for the faith and tells us how to do that. How do we do that on a practical standpoint? How do we contend for the faith? This is his survival strategy for apostate times. His survival strategy. And we're going to see that his survival strategy is given to us in such a way that we fight against heretics. So we fight against those false teachers. But we also have to fight against ourselves. Because we, with, with, with still being exposed to sin, we are very capable of wandering and falling into sin on our own without false teachers leading us into that. So we have to fight against false teachers, but we also have to fight against ourselves. We have to fight against our proneness to wander, our our temptations that we're faced with in sin every week. We have to fight against those things as well. For many of us, we don't need a false teacher to lead us into sin. We can do that uh, on our own just fine. And so we have to fight against ourselves as well. And we're going to see that this survival strategy that Jude lays out is designed to help us fight against both those things. If I were to summarize these verses, it would be, Allow the past to drive you to present action as you keep your eye on the future. Allow the past to drive you to present action as you keep your eye on the future. So Jude's going to once again draw our attention to the past. He says, allow the past, allow what we know about the past to drive you to present action. He says, you need to do things now based on what we know about the past. And in being active in the present, 
Keep your eye on the future because we're working towards something. We're working for something. Allow the past to drive you to the present action as you keep your eye on the future. So number one, remember the past. Jude says, you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. He says that those who fail to learn from Israel's history and are willing to forge beyond the apostles' teaching are condemned. People that are willing to, to ignore Israel's history, to ignore these, these historical accounts that we've talked about where God is faithful to judge, people that are willing to ignore that, people that are willing to forge ahead of the apostles' teaching. We talked about this previously, that these false teachers want to go ahead of what's already been established. We have a sufficient faith. It's old. It's been passed down to us. It doesn't need an update. We have the apostles' teaching, and it's sufficient for us today. But Jude says people that want to forge ahead of that, they ultimately stand condemned before God. Jude reminds us that apostates will always be around. It was predicted by the apostles, in the last time there will be scoffers. Now when we studied in Thessalonians, we talked about the last times or the last days is really the all-encompassing time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. So we live in the last days. The first coming of Jesus inaugurated the end times. It's the, it's the time before his second coming now. And so um, it's not a, a short amount of time, as we've seen over history now, but it's that time frame between his first and second coming. And the apostles have warned us they will be, there will be scoffers all during this time. Jude says they follow their own lust. They follow their own godly passions, and it results in divisions. They put themselves before others. We've already highlighted the fact they feed themselves. So these are not caretakers. These are not shepherds. These are not people who who follow the example of Christ that we talked about years ago in Philippians 2. It's not the mindset of putting others above yourself. These are individuals who put themselves above others, and it results in division. For those that were at Mount Gilead when we talked about Philippians, you'll remember the whole theme of that book was unity for the sake of the gospel. And the only way we can have unity in the church is if we're putting each other's needs above our own needs. The reason they cause division is because they put their needs above others' needs. They follow their own godly lust, their passions, They're thinking about themselves first, and it results in division within the church. Romans 16, verse 17 and 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Jude says they walk according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. We know that because they do not have the spirit. It says they cause divisions, worldly worldly people devoid of the spirit. They live how they want to. They have no master. They scoff at the moral responsibility that God's law teaches, and they scoff at the accountability, as Peter talks about, believing that Jesus will not return to hold them accountable to their actions. 
I think it's imperative that we ask ourselves the question, am I spirit-led or am I instinct-driven? Am I spirit-led or am I instinct-driven? These people act on their their natural desires. They're not spirit-led. They're not supernaturally being led by the spirit. They're simply acting on their feelings and their desires. And sometimes it can be easy to blur those. I'm doing what God wants me to do, we say, but ultimately we're doing what we want to do. So Jude is posing the question, which group do you fall in? Are you somebody who has the spirit that's led by the spirit? Are you devoid of the spirit? Are you allowing yourself to be instinct driven? Now, in context, he's talking about these passionate desires, these sexual desires even. And this is prevalent in the church today, a a minimizing of what God's word has to say about these issues. A theology that allows for sex outside of God's covenant design for marriage is not Christian. A theology that allows for sex outside of God's covenant design for marriage is not Christian. Natural feelings and desires will always lead us to abandon God's standard for holiness regarding sex. Now, I seem to be confronted with this type of theology constantly, even within my own family. People who don't seem to be led by the Spirit when it comes to what God's Word has to say about sex and relationships. Instead, they are completely motivated by what they feel on the inside. And their feelings and their natural desires dictates to them what is right and what is wrong when it comes to sex and relationships. As I was studying yesterday, I began to write down the consequences of letting ourselves um, be led by our natural feelings instead of allowing the Spirit to lead us. If we let ourselves... We can justify sex before marriage in the name of love. So if we're, if we're giving ourselves over to, to letting our feelings dictate what we do, we can justify sex before marriage in the name of love. We can justify sex outside of marriage because our needs go unmet. We can justify ungodly relationships and marriage because love covers a multitude of sins. We can justify unhealthy relationships under the guise of I'm going to help this person. I'm going to, I'm going to improve this person. I'm going to lead this person to Christ. And so these are types of justifications that happen when somebody wants to pursue a relationship with somebody that's not a believer. They, they allow their feelings to dictate what's right and what's wrong in that situation instead of submitting to what God's word has to say. Paul says we can't be unequally yoked. That, that light and darkness can't have fellowship together. So he prohibits us from from marrying uh, an unbeliever, which really means in our context today, he prohibits us from dating unbelievers as well because we date to marry. But it's very easy. And I I hear this time and time again where people get off track in this area and they allow their feelings to dictate what they do. And they begin to justify their actions based on what they feel is right. Divorce and remarriage based on what we think is permissible. Ultimately, anything less than God's best and created design for us. If we allow our feelings and our natural desires to lead us, we get way off track from what God created and designed sex and marriage to be. And these people, these false teachers, they draw on and they prey on people's passions and desires. And they have a theology and a doctrine that's inconsistent with God's word on these issues. We have to fight to make sure that we're being led by the Spirit and not being led by our own natural desires. 
that we don't justify unhealthy perspectives in these issues. And I think we're called to address these unhealthy perspectives and issues in other people's lives as well. And we're going to see later on that we have a responsibility to go get people that are wandering away. And so we have to be equipped to know how to speak to people on these issues and not just sit back in, in the name of love and tolerance and allow them to, to do what they think is best for them. We have a responsibility to fight and contend for the faith. These people are driven by their natural feelings and it allows them to shift and shape what God's word has to say about things that's been clearly revealed to us. So he says, remember the past. Number two, he says, be active in the present. Allow the past to drive you to the present. So in light of the fact that we have to be aware of false teachers around us, we need to be doing something actively in the present to prepare for that. We have a responsibility to secure our own faith and then rescue others. So we're going to see that being active in the present means that we have to secure our own faith. So there's a, an upbuilding of ourselves And once that's taking place, we have a responsibility to go get others and to rescue others from false teaching. So there's a defensive strategy and an offensive strategy that Jude lays out here for us. The defensive strategy. We must recognize truth from error. We must recognize what to embrace and what to shun. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do not bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or If you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Paul warns that there's there's false teachers that are coming, and if we're not careful, we'll be deceived, just like Eve was deceived in the garden. Defensive strategy. As a church, I want to give you some, some things that we have to do as a church that Jude doesn't lay out here, but I think it's relevant for us to talk about it from a church context, and then we're going to see what he issues to us as an individual uh, responsibility to to be defensive in this strategy. I think, first of all, as a church, we must teach doctrine. We must be faithful to teach doctrine here at Sovereign Hope, even though doctrine is divisive at times. Doctrine divides us, and it's not always a bad divide. We have different denominations because, obviously, we believe differently about doctrines. We talked about it earlier when we started Jude, that there are doctrines that are more important than others. There's doctrines that If we disagree about them, it separates us as far as Christianity goes. You're not Christian if you don't believe these things. There's other doctrines that if we disagree about them, we're probably not going to be able to worship together, depending on how important we view those doctrines. Then there's other doctrines that we can disagree about, and it will probably never really affect our worship together. But we have to teach doctrine because we have to know what Scripture says if we're going to protect ourselves from false teachers. Secondly, as a church, we must avoid moral relativism. We must avoid moral relativism. The Bible isn't as gray as some people want to make it. The Bible's not gray about some of these issues. It it can be pretty black and white about what God's standard of holiness is. 
Now, people will come up with ways to not see it as black and white. They'll come up with ways to justify what they're doing. I mean, we can, we can read in Scripture that God hates divorce, and yet we can see Christians time and time again walk away from it, saying it's just not working for us. We've grown apart. We're just not, we're not compatible anymore. So we can see what God's Word has to say, and then we can see what, what people want to interpret that to mean, and they can shift it and change it and divert it to match their natural feelings and desires. But we must avoid moral relativism in the church. Uh, thirdly, we must implement church discipline. And we've been faithful to do that here at Sovereign Hope. And it hasn't gotten to the point where, where we've ever had to speak to somebody about not coming back to this church. But we've taken sin so seriously in this church that it has led people to leave our church. That through accountability relationships, people being called to repentance and people not wanting to repent of sin, it has led people to, to abandon our church. Now, obviously, we grieve for that, but we also recognize that, that we're doing the right thing in establishing a, an environment of holiness, that we want to pursue Christ, that we need a protected environment because our kids are watching how we act. And our kids are, are observing how we handle issues in our church. And we're teaching them about the holy environment that we want to have here at Sovereign Hope. And us not tolerating sin and us not becoming a church of moral relativism where, where people act and do things that they want to do based on their natural desires. Lastly, we must raise up more church leadership. This church must be protected. Now, this is an appeal to the men in our church. Now, granted, we're, we're, we're hopefully close to establishing two more elders in our church. But statistics would say that Tyson and Adam and, and me are not going to be here together, all three of us, for the next 25, 30 years. That God may pull one of us, two of us, all three of us away at some point. But we want this church to be established until Jesus comes back. And so we can't just be content to sit back. Guys can't be content to sit back and say, well, we've got, we've got elders in our church now. The call is still there for men in our church to, to pursue Christ in such a way that they can serve as elders in our church. That we need protection. We need leadership. And so it's an appeal to men in our church to rise up and to be that type of individual that can lead this church, to shepherd this church. Those are things we must do as a church. But as an individual, Jude really gives us insight into what his expectations are to avoid these false teachers. In verse 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. There's, there's three triads that we see in this passage that I think are, are important and relevant for us to observe. First of all, we see the, the Christian triad of faith, hope, and love again. Remember, we, we, we reiterated that over and over when we studied First and Second Thessalonians, that Paul constantly drew attention to the need for faith, the need for love, and the need for hope. And we see all three of those running through verse 20 and 21. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So we see the love of God, we see the faith that we're supposed to be upbuilding ourselves in, and then that aspect of waiting and hoping for the return of Jesus. We also see the Trinity at work in this passage. 
And, and this is relevant for those that want to attack the Trinity, that come to our doorsteps potentially. Um, when, when Lauren was communicating with the Mormons recently, they don't believe in the Trinity, and they were challenging her about the Trinity. Explain the Trinity to us. Show us the Trinity to us in Scripture. And here's a perfect example of the Trinity playing itself out. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Keeping yourselves in the love of God. Waiting for the mercy of Jesus. We see all three persons of the Trinity at work in this passage. Faith, love, and hope. The Trinity at work within us. Now, we're going back to what does it mean to contend for the faith? I think the answer is real simple. And then Jude breaks that answer down for us. Now, you can see that the English language has carried over the, the, the intent of the Greek for us. The answer to how do we contend for the faith is found in verse 21. It's keep yourselves in the love of God. We contend for the faith by keeping ourselves in the love of God. And then Jude tells us how to keep ourselves in the love of God. And he does that with three verbs that end in ing. So he gives us these participle words that expound upon what it means to keep ourselves in the love of God. He tells us to be building ourselves in our most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting for Jesus. So as an individual, we must keep ourselves in God's love by building ourselves up in the faith. The first, the first encouragement that Jude gives to us about contending for the faith, he says, you've got to keep yourselves in God's love by building yourselves up in the faith. This isn't rocket science. This isn't new revelation. This is a continual appeal for Christians to study the Bible. That's how we build ourselves up in the faith. We're not looking for something mystical here. We're not looking for something, some type of out-of-body experience. This isn't something that we have to go on a journey for. This is simple, basic Christian Bible study. Build yourselves up in the faith. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Do the opposite of what the angels did, where they didn't stay where they were supposed to. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, we know way back at the beginning of Jude that he's already affirmed to us that you're not going anywhere, that you're, you're, you're firm in your faith, you're not going to stray, God's not going to let you go. But we also said that there's an, a, a believer's responsibility in that, that we don't just get to sit back and say, okay, my eternity's secure, I can't lose my salvation, I just get to do whatever I want to. There's an active role that we play in this, and we're to keep ourselves in the love of God, first, by building ourselves up in the faith. We're to pursue sanctification. We're to become doctrinally strong. Acts twenty thirty two. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. It's God's word that establishes us. It's God's word that builds us up. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. When we're established in the word, we don't wander. In 1 John 2.14, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. The way we overcome the evil one is by having the word of God abide in us. Commentator Kent Hughes says you cannot be profoundly influenced by that by that which you do not know. You can't be profoundly influenced by. By something you do not know. So we can get together as women in the church. We can get together as men in the church and say we want to be godly men. We want to be godly women. We want to be influenced by God's word. We want to be the type of individuals that God desires for us to be. We will never be those type of individuals. We will never be godly men. We will never be godly women if we're not allowing God's word to abide in us. It just won't happen. We can't be profoundly influenced. We can't become something that we don't know. Jude's appeal to us is to be in the word. A strong, fruitful Christian always has made a commitment to be in God's word. A strong, fruitful Christian has always made a commitment to be in God's word. You don't have strong, fruitful Christians that don't spend time in God's word. You may have good individuals. You may have people that you like to hang out with, but you don't have strong, spirit-led believers that don't spend time in God's Word. It just doesn't happen. To be spirit-led, you have to be in God's Word. Now, I'm not telling you, I'm not defining for you what being in the Word means. And we said this again back at the beginning of January. I desire for you to be in the Word. I desire for you to figure out what it means for you to be in the word. What does that look like on a practical daily schedule? I can't communicate that to you. I can't tell you because I think it doesn't work. I think it becomes a, a legalistic mindset of do it this way that doesn't work for some people. So I can't tell you that getting up at 5 a.m. and systematically working yourself through something for two hours every morning is what being in the word means. One, because the way I'm in the Word, where I've got a journal and I've got commentaries and I've got God's Word in front of me, it's not the same thing that was going on in the New Testament. They didn't have the type of resources that we have. So I can't impose upon you how I spend time in God's Word because God's Word doesn't communicate it that way. God says, you've got to be in my Word if you're going to be established in the faith. You have a responsibility to figure out what that looks like for you. Praying through that with the Holy Spirit. Same way we handle our giving here. We're not going to tell you how much to give. We're going to expect you to work that out with the Holy Spirit. Same thing with being in the Word. We're not going to tell you how much time you should be reading God's Word during the week. What we are going to appeal to you is that you've got to be in God's Word. You've got to be men and women that are in the Word if we're going to be protected from false teachers, if we're going to be protected from our own sinful desires. Secondly, we must keep ourselves in God's love by praying faithfully. We keep ourselves in God's love by building ourselves up in the faith 
and by praying faithfully. Our prayers flow out of our knowledge of truth. So as we're in the word, we are better equipped to pray because we can pray in the spirit. We can pray in line with Jesus' desires. We pray for his will to be done and not our own desires. And then thirdly, we must keep ourselves in God's love by waiting in obedience. John 15, 9-11, Jesus gives insight to his disciples about how to stay in the love of God. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I think it's important that Jesus connects joy with obedience. That this isn't harsh, rigid laws that we're to keep. That we're to obey Jesus' commands and that through that obedience we experience full joy. Because we're doing things the way the creator designed for them to be done. He created this earth. He's given us the instruction manual for how to enjoy it. When we do things his way, we get the ultimate joy here on earth. Jesus says, stay in the Father's love through obedience. 1 John 2, 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. The importance of connecting the aspect of God's love to waiting in obedience. We must fight for obedience while waiting. We must fight for obedience while we wait for Jesus to return. The encouragement to us is that the resurrection is coming and that glorification is coming. Probably the two areas that would discourage Christians the most. The loss of loved ones. The loss of loved ones and then the the despair of sin in our life. Those are two things that weigh Christians down constantly. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, I don't want you to, to grieve as those who have no hope. And he gives insight about loved ones coming back with Jesus one day. He also doesn't want us to grieve and despair in our own sin, knowing that glorification is coming. And so we wait in obedience, knowing that these two potential roadblocks to despair will be taken away, that the resurrection is coming. We will be reunited with those that we love. We will experience complete freedom from sin one day. I think it's important to note, too, that we wait confidently that Jesus is coming. We wait confidently that our salvation is sure. The cost of Jesus, the cost of following Jesus, is too great if it can be lost in the end. I can't imagine people that that live under the doctrine that we could potentially forfeit everything at the end of our life, that, that our salvation could be lost. Jesus never portrays it that way. In, in Luke 9, in Luke 9, 23 through 25, Jesus is appealing to the fact that losing our life here is worth it because of the life that we gain. He says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life 
for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The encouragement and the hope that I have is that I've surrendered to Jesus. I've taken up my cross and I'm following him and my salvation is secure. Can you imagine if, if, if it, what it would look like to lose your life here and then somehow lose your life there as well? To forfeit it some way in the end. But the assurance that we have at the beginning of Jude and what we're going to see here in just a minute is that we serve a God who keeps us from stumbling. Who will work to present us blameless. So as we, we strive in the present, we stay encouraged that our salvation is secure. We wait expectingly. We wait knowing that Jesus is coming for us and we don't have to fear that return. The defensive strategy, we keep ourselves in the love of God by building ourselves up, building ourselves up in the faith, praying faithfully, and waiting in obedience. But there's also an offensive strategy. We cannot sit back idly in the name of love and tolerance towards those that are deceived. We don't get to just thrive in our own faith. We don't get to thrive in our own good doctrine and let others be abandoned. We have a responsibility to build ourselves up in the faith, but then to go rescue those that have been deceived by false teaching. Whether that's from a false teacher or whether they've been deceived by their own natural instincts, we have a responsibility to help these people. Look what Jude says. Verse 22, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. There's three different types of people here. He addresses one type in verse 22. He addresses two others in verse 23. We have the doubters. Have mercy on those who doubt. We have the endangered. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. These are people who have, who have given into the doubt and have shifted and moved towards this false way of thinking. But then lastly, show others mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. These are the dangerous. This is when you start to get really close to somebody who's not just bought into this false teaching, but has become a faithful communicator of it. It's somebody who hasn't just wandered into sin. It's someone who's, who's leading others into sin as well. So this would be the difference between uh, somebody here at Sovereign Hope that's doubting their faith, doubting their salvation, to now engaging and, and working towards salvation with, with a Mormon missionary. Right? Someone who is, who's not really getting the gospel or seems to be doubting some of the gospel here in our church versus someone who is actively communicating a false gospel. And there's different approaches to how we handle these people. He says, first of all, with the doubters, we must encourage them. We encourage them. We show sympathy to these people. Have mercy on those who doubt. We're to show patience to them. We're to show sympathy to them. We show grace and mercy to them as we strengthen them in truth. And in order to do that, we have to have a well-thought-out position with the issues that they're struggling with. We have to have a well-thought-out position, a well-thought-out Christian position. Okay, so let's take, for example, and I won't use his name since, since we're podcasting and we won't go back and edit it out, but, but who we referenced last week, 
this guy who, who would come to be a part of our church and is now shifted and wandered and is making decisions based on who he wants to date, who he wants to potentially marry, and it being in contrary to what God's word has to say about it, a believer pursuing an unbeliever. We have to go get him. We have to sit down and speak truth to him. He's somebody who's, who's doubting God's word and at this point has probably moved into the second category. But it's somebody who initially was doubting God's word on this, and there was conversations that would happen with this individual. And the only way to win this individual is to have a solid Christian position on this issue that he was struggling with. We have to know what God's word teaches about relationships if we're going to engage somebody who's wandering in this area. We have to know what God's word says about this stuff. Same thing with, with um, Lizzie, who, who left our church two years ago. Same issue. We have to have a well-thought-out Christian position. We have to be resolved to know what God's word has to say about this so that we can lead that person back to a strong, faithful understanding of God's word. But we also have to take into account some of the, the other issues that are involved in that. God's word is black and white. How we apply that is not always black and white in conversation with somebody. Um, let's say you're talking to somebody who, and maybe this issue comes up again in our church. Let's say you're talking to somebody who is, who is um, lowering their standards for who they should pursue in a relationship, believer going after an unbeliever. We can come in and blow the situation up and say, this is what God's word has to say. But maybe within that, there's some other things that are going on. Perhaps this individual has parents where a mom or a dad married outside of the covenant family, right? Like, so let's say that this person has a mom who's a believer that married an unbeliever. So we come in and we say, hey, you can't date this person. This is not, this is not according to God's word. And we fail to realize, I'm basically telling you that, that your mom made a huge mistake when she married your dad. Now, again, it's true. It's right. God's word says something very clear about this. How we take that and present it to somebody, we've got to have a well-thought-out Christian position. We've got to come with sympathy and grace and mercy. And I believe the guys that have gone to speak to this individual have done that. But it's so necessary to know what Scripture has to say, to really think through it, and to take into account all the factors that are, that are bringing the situation about. What is causing somebody to wander? How do we address it? How do we come with sympathy? How do we come with understanding? But how do we come with truth as well? And this is real practical for our church because we've had these situations arise within the last couple of years already, multiple times. We come with sympathy, but we come with truth. Jude says, encourage those that are doubting. Encourage those that seem confused. But then verse 23, save others by snatching them out of the fire. These are the endangered. These are the people that are in, in danger of completely walking away. They're no longer doubting. They're no longer in the Christian circle wrestling with things. They've removed themselves from the influence, right? Like they're not, they're not in a setting where their doubts can be encouraged anymore. They've taken a step away. And now we have to actively go get them because they're in danger of fire. This is judgment fire. This is the same judgment that these other people that were referenced earlier are, are experiencing and will experience for eternity. He says, snatch them out of the fire. We must pursue those who have wandered. 
forcefully if necessary. We must seek to return them to safety. Jesus mimicked this for us. He modeled this for us. We know that Jesus spent time with sinners. We know that he went to to the outcast people. But if you want to jot down these references, um, Luke 11.37 and Luke 14.1, this is Jesus having dinner with Pharisees, with false teachers. So Jesus didn't just spend his time with tax collectors. He didn't just go eat with Zacchaeus. He ate in the homes of Pharisees. He ate with those that were were really in danger. They weren't just doubters. They weren't just the lost. He was in there. He was mixing things up with the false teachers as well. We must seek to return them to safety. John or James 5, 19 through 20. Encouragement to us that this is the right way to handle things. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We're God's instrument of salvation. God uses people in the church to bring people back to the truth. Again, we don't have people in our church that are being preyed upon, to my knowledge, by physical false teachers. But we have had people since we established this church that were led astray by their own natural instincts and desires. And we have to go get them. We have to be prepared to go get them. Because Jude is talking about saving people, rescuing people, after he said, build yourself up in the faith. We can't have immature people when it comes to God's word trying to sit down and have encouraging conversations with people that doubt. You're not equipped to do it. So the urgency there is to be in the word so that you're useful, so that you're useful in this effort of salvation and rescuing people. Number three, the dangerous. The dangerous. We must be cautious with those who have fallen. We must be cautious with those who have fallen. He says, back in Jude, save others by snatching them out of the fire. The others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. He says, we got to show great humility in approaching some people lest we fall into the same temptation that they've fallen into. I read some accounts in, um, I read one account in, in, in a commentary that I was reading where a man and, and his family felt so compelled to to serve and minister to abused women, women that were coming out of prostitution, um, and, and it set up this ministry to help save these women. But in doing so, this man gave himself over to his own fleshly desires and ended up falling into sin with some of the women that he was trying to save out of this industry. This is the type of caution that that Jude is calling us to, that in trying to help some people, we've got to be careful that we don't fall prey to falling into the very sin that we're trying to rescue them from. He says, hate even the garments that stained by the flesh. This, This wordage here is, it's very... Um, it's very graphic, it's very grotesque. It's, 
It's basically saying there are some people that you have to take such care with. It's the same type of care that you would take when handling dirty underwear, that you don't want to contaminate yourself. Now, when, when, when I worked at Snowbird, one of the jobs that we had was to clean, like, the bathhouse. And the bathhouse is disgusting after an afternoon of showers. Like, there's standing water, there's kids that forget their towels, and so they're just walking around the bathhouse, dripping stuff everywhere, and there's, there's mud that gets tracked in. And when you go in there to clean, inevitably people leave their underwear behind. Like, and, and so it's just kind of piled up there, and, like, it's our responsibility to get it out. And so, like, there's great care and caution by me to make sure that as little of me comes in contact with that piece of garment. T-shirt, I'm fine with dirty, wet underwear, I want to take extreme caution. I don't want to be contaminated by it. That's the language that Jude's using here. He says, you use such great care and caution with handling these people. The same way you'd handle a dirty diaper. You want absolutely nothing to do with it. You don't want to be contaminated by it, but you have to deal with it, right? Like you have to do something with it. Jude says, you've got to do something with these people. You've got to seek these people. You've got to reach these people, but do it with great care and with great caution. Second Peter uh, 1, 5-8. For this very reason, make every effort to supplant your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says, you've got to be growing yourself or you can't be useful to other people. You can't be useful in the ministry of rescue if you're not growing yourself. So both of these go hand in hand. What do we do here in the active present? We've got to be growing ourselves and we've got to be seeking to rescue others. It's our offensive strategy as well as our defensive strategy. We protect ourselves. We secure our faith. We rescue others. And then we come to number three, be hopeful of the future. So allow the past to drive you to present action as you keep your eyes on the future. Be hopeful of the future. And Jude gives us strong reason to be hopeful about our future. He says in verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. First thing, we can trust in the one who holds our future. We can trust in the one who holds our future. It says now to him who is able to keep you. We're told to keep ourselves in the love of God, but here we're told ultimately it's God who keeps us. Not for judgment. There's a group of people that are being kept for judgment. But here Jude says he is keeping you from stumbling. This term to keep, it's a, it's a military term and it, it implies the aspect of somebody covering for you. So in the midst of combat, you've got God who serves as your cover. The one who is protecting you as you go about doing your tasks. He's the one who sits above and is able to see what's going on and provides the cover fire. He's the one that keeps us from stumbling. Proverbs twenty four sixteen.
For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. Doesn't mean that we won't ever fall back into sin, but the encouragement and the hope for us is that when we fall, we rise back up again. That God keeps us from ultimately stumbling. It's a reminder of the perseverance of the saints, which means true believers persevere in faith in the gospel to the end because the Father has granted them an unfailing faith. God is powerful enough to override our desires to wander. So it's not even just left to our own faithfulness. It's not our faithfulness that determines if we make it. It's God's faithfulness. One commentator said the path to heaven is dangerous but it's safe. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you know that Christian endures a dangerous road to the celestial city. But he's confident the entire way that his his path is, is safe, that he will make it. And even when his partner falls to the side and is killed for his faith, he makes it to the celestial city. So the path is dangerous. And, we, and we've talked about this before. We have a dangerous road ahead of us as Christians, but our path is safe. Because we trust in the one who keeps us from stumbling. And then lastly, we are to worship the one who holds our future. We trust in the one who holds our future. We worship the one who holds our future. This closing doxology that Jude gives us, it negates any fear. It brings joy and it stimulates hope for us. It says that God will preserve us and he will present us blameless. And as I shared with you earlier, presenting us blameless means to make us stand, to make us stand in the presence of God, completely free from sin, completely justified based on the work of Jesus Christ. Two questions that I want to leave you with today is application. Am I being kept for Jesus or am I being kept for judgment? It's once again an appeal for you to examine yourselves. Are you in the faith? I don't want to be ignorant enough to think that everybody here is a Christian and that every week everybody that's present is a Christian. We have to examine ourselves. Are we being kept for Jesus or are we being kept for judgment? Have we been saved from God's wrath? Do we serve our master and Lord Jesus Christ? Are we being spirit-led or are we being instinct-driven? That question has to be answered today. Are we being kept for Jesus or for judgment? And then lastly, What am I doing to grow personally this year? And what am I doing to engage others around me? This is the same application for Jonah, right? Like I told you, this was going to be a continuation of Jonah. So the big application for the end of the book of Jude is, what are you going to do to grow personally this year? And what are you going to do to engage others around you? Your neighborhood, your workplace, your family, your hobbies. What are you doing to engage those people? You interact with people that have been deceived by false teaching. Whether the false teaching of an individual or the false teaching of their own natural instincts and desires. You interact with people that have been deceived in some form or fashion. What are you doing to engage them? What are you doing this year to encourage the doubter? To rescue those that are endangered? To to be very cautious and careful with those that are dangerous? That's the appeal that Jude has for us this morning. We've got to be active in the present. We've got to build ourselves up in the faith. We've got to keep ourselves in the love of God. We do that through personal Bible study, through prayer, through waiting patiently in obedience. 
But it's not just about what we do to ourselves. We have responsibility to rescue others, to fight for others, to contend for the faith. Father, we're very thankful uh, that we have your word to study together this morning. God, I'm thankful that you have uh, chosen to make a way of salvation for us. God, I pray that uh, you would be honored even today as we celebrate that salvation uh, through partaking of, of your supper that you have given to us. Um, God, we're thankful for the perfect life of Jesus, a perfect life that we could never live. Father, we're also thankful that you sent your son to absorb the wrath and the punishment and judgment that we so rightfully earned with our sinful life and even our attempt to be good. Father, we fall so short, and so we deserve uh, we deserve your punishment. And so, God, we thank you this morning that we are no longer being kept for judgment, that that judgment has already been taken place on the cross, and that we can uh, move forward waiting obediently and expectingly, knowing that we are being kept for Jesus. God, we're thankful this morning that our salvation, our endurance doesn't rely on our own efforts, but... We can trust our future with you, knowing that you will keep us from stumbling, that you will continue to work in us, that you will finish the work that you've started in us. God, I pray that you would use this celebration of the Lord's Supper even today as an encouragement for us to press on, to grow in our faith, to faithfully pray to you, to submit ourselves to you. And God, give us wisdom in, in interacting with those around us. God, that we would be individuals who are snatching people from the fires of judgment. God, give us the ability to be sympathetic, to be forceful, to be faithful. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.